The relationship between labor and capital also finds expression when workers participate in ownership, management, and profits. This is an all-too-often-overlooked requirement, and it should be given greater consideration. On the basis of their work, each person is fully entitled to consider themselves a part owner of the great workbench where they are working with everyone else. A way towards that goal could be found by associating labor with the ownership of capital. That's an excerpt from the Compendium of the Social Doctrine of the Church, and this is the Liberation Theology Podcast, a weekly look at the basic concepts of Latin American liberation theology. I'm your host, David Inchowskis. Last week, we began a discussion with Dr. Marcus Mesher, professor of theology at Xavier University, on Catholic social teaching. This week, that conversation continues. We look into the relationship between Catholic social teaching and liberation theology. We also explore the contents of Marcus's new book, The Ethics of Encounter, and he gives us some glimpses of hope at the end of the conversation in this time of pandemic and isolation. And so I hope that you enjoy today's episode. Let's get into it right now. The chapter of Mysterium Liberationis for discussion this week is about the relationship between liberation theology and Catholic social teaching. And so how would you, Marcus, speak about that relationship between Catholic social teaching and liberation theology? How do they complement each other? How does maybe one inform the other? But what is the dialogue like between Catholic social teaching and liberation theology? Yeah, that's a great question. And and I'm, I'm glad that you posed it as, as complementary. You know, these aren't uh, opposing choices, you know, that, you, you know, you have one foot in one camp and maybe another foot in another, you know, that there's a shared vision of the human person. And I, and I think the real difference between these two areas in, in theology is, is really the starting point. You know, that when Leo the Thirteenth the, the writes Rerum Novarum, he can have a heart for the plight of, of workers being exploited in, you know, factories and workshops. But if he's, if he's writing in the Vatican, you know, and, and citing a bunch of dead men <laughs> in, in making his case, that, that's going to be, uh, that's going to result in a different document and a different kind of, of body of scholarship. Then if, we, if our starting point is actually to do theology from the factory uh, or to do it from the slum or the ghetto uh, or to do it from the, you know, the brothel or the substance abuse treatment center. And so, you know, I had the, the great privilege and blessing to study with Gustavo Gutierrez when he would teach in the summers at Boston College. And I got to spend two summers with him. And, and he would really emphasize that where, where you stand changes what you see. And so uh, the starting point of liberation theology is to stand with the people who've been rendered socially insignificant, the non-persons. You know, in, in the opening pages of A Theology of Liberation, Gustavo Gutierrez points out that poverty means death, you know, that, that it's anti-life 
and, and this is something that Pope John Paul II talked a lot about, right? Like the culture of life and the culture of death. And poverty is violence because it, it results in a lack of food and housing. It means being unable to attend to, to health and education needs. It results in the exploitation of workers or permanent unemployment. It's disrespect, you know, um, a violation of inherent human dignity. It's expressed through unjust limitations placed on personal freedom that limit people from self-expression, that keep them from participating in politics, or even in celebrating their religion. Poverty destroys individuals and families, culture. And you see this, you know, after Vatican II, when Gaudium et Spes takes seriously this idea that the church has to be attentive and responsive to the joys and the hopes, the griefs, and the sorrows of the people of God. Then in 1968 in Medellin, the, you know, the, this Episcopal conference of, of Latin American bishops, they say, okay, how do we read the signs of the times? What are the joys and hopes, the griefs and sorrows of the people in Central and Latin and South America? And how do we respond to them? And so in these Episcopal conferences in Medellin, in Puebla, Aparecida, uh, poverty is denounced as institutionalized violence. And, you know, if we take that as our starting point, liberation theology calls us to be accountable to the, the faces of the poor. You know, that's one of the things that I love in reading the documents that come out of those Episcopal conferences in Medellin and Puebla, Santo Domingo and Aparecida, is that these aren't masses of people who've just been fated to deprivation and discrimination. These are human beings who have the same hopes and dreams, the same misery and suffering that anyone else, including you and me, might have. And so... Um, you know, for Gustavo Gutierrez, the, the best way to illustrate this is to use the, the story of the Samaritan in Luke's gospel, where, you know, the, I think we've domesticated this story quite a bit. And then we kind of know, like, oh, you know, when the good Samaritan shows up, that's the moral hero. A lot of people think it means, you know, when you're in an emergency setting, you should help out or give what you can. You know, everyone's supposed to be a good Samaritan. But I, I think we've totally missed the point of this story, uh, which is, you know, first of all, that the road from Jerusalem to Jericho is notoriously unsafe. So the man who's beaten, robbed, and left for dead has no sympathy whatsoever in Jesus' audience. He gets what he deserves. And then secondly, you know, when, when the priests and the Levites show up, you know, they, they see the man who's beaten, robbed, and left for dead, and they, they create greater distance between themselves. They, the, the, the passage reads, they actually go to the other side. They become the anti-neighbor, right? Because neighbor means nearby. So they go farther away. They create more distance between them, themselves and the man who's been beaten, robbed, and left for dead. But then the Samaritan shows up and the, the enmity between Jews and Samaritans has been lost on us. But these, these two categories of people hated each other. You know, that, that the man who's been beaten, robbed and left for dead would, would have preferred death than to have been helped by a Samaritan. And he draws near. He, he, he goes closer. He goes out of his way and into the ditch where he could have been ambushed, right? Because this road is so notoriously unsafe. So it's an incredible act of courage to go into the ditch because he has no idea what's waiting for him or what will befall him. But the text also says his heart was melting or his stomach was you know, churning in compassion for this person. So he connects on this human, this visceral level. And that, that's really what liberation theology calls from us, you know, to, to encounter these people who are experiencing misery. You know, it's Sabrino's line of the crucified peoples of today 
who are enduring the violence, the premature death of poverty that prevents them from being able to enjoy the, the freedom and to make use of the opportunities and access resources that they deserve by virtue of their humanity to participate in society with a full range of agency. That, that it's our job to, to share life with them, to draw near, and, and to, you know, to go a step further. Gustavo Gutierrez calls us to friendship with the poor, that we cast our lot together. And I think in becoming friends, we see that this, this is another way to break through that unilateral aid or the, the condescending pity of charity, because friendship implies an equality, a reciprocity, mutual respect, concern, commitment, loyalty. And so that vision of friendship, that we really, we share life with the poor, that we become friends together, that their problems become our problems. I think that's the big difference between liberation theology and, and Catholic social teaching, because the body of Catholic social teaching is trying to speak to the entire global church. You know, you've got over a billion Catholics all over the world. North American Catholics are only 6% of uh, the global church. You know, the church is growing mostly in the global south. And so it's not easy to speak to the, you know, the church is global. And, and liberation theology comes from a particular social location. And, and that's the task in Catholic theology, to hold together the universal and the particular. And so these principles, I think, are really helpful, but very often it kind of gets employed, you know, from the top down. And liberation theology is a little bit more bottom up. You know, it's, it's the base ecclesial communities organizing from the grassroots, the Bible studies with you know, people in slums or in the worker-owned co-op or in the, the AA meetings or in the, the domestic violence shelters where they come together, they read scripture through Lexio Divina, and they say, okay, what is God calling us to be and to do? What is God requiring from us in this time and place. So Gustavo Gutierrez would clarify the preferential option for the poor is not something from the rich or the comfortable for the poor. Gustavo Gutierrez adds, that's a, that's a preferential option for the poor by the poor as well, that no one is off the hook for the preferential option for the poor, that everyone has something that they can bring, that they can offer. And for Gustavo Gutierrez, the, the foundation for being able to respond to a world marked by so many wounds and unjust inequalities, so much distrust and division and mounting despair, you know, that the, the core resource is the gratuitousness of God's love. God never tires of loving us, that God never tires of forgiving us, that God never refuses or withholds to, you know, to provide for us so that, that we can trust, not in a presumptuous way, um, but in, in a faithful way, that God will equip and, and, and empower us to respond to the cry of the poor, this cry for life from people who are unseen and unheard. And, and so I think you get a real prophetic critique from liberation theology and a call to conversion that you don't necessarily get from Catholic social teaching. And, and if, if time allows, I'd like to read this passage, actually. Uh, this This is really... I think what captured my heart in reading A Theology of Liberation, a book that I've read many times, but this is the passage that is the most marked up. And uh, Gustavo Gutierrez writes, a spirituality of liberation will center on a conversion to the neighbor, the oppressed person, the exploited social class, the despised ethnic group, the dominated country. Our conversion to the Lord implies this conversion to the neighbor. 
Evangelical conversion is indeed the touchstone of all spirituality. Conversion means a radical transformation of ourselves. It means thinking, feeling, and living as Christ, present in exploited and alienated persons. To be converted is to commit oneself to the process of the liberation of the poor and the oppressed, to commit oneself lucidly, realistically, and concretely. It means to commit oneself not only generously, but also with an analysis of the situation and a strategy of action. To be converted is to know and experience the fact that, contrary to the laws of physics, we can stand straight, according to the gospel, only when our center of gravity is outside ourselves. Conversion is a permanent process in which very often the obstacles we meet make us lose all we had gained and start anew. The fruitfulness of our conversion depends on our openness to doing this, our spiritual childhood, or you know, this is what Metz calls the poverty of spirit. All conversion implies a break. To wish to accomplish it without conflict is to deceive oneself and others. And, and a little bit later, Gutierrez writes, without a change in these structures, there is no authentic conversion. We have to break with our mental categories, with the way we relate to others, and our way of identifying with the Lord, with our cultural milieu, with our social class. In other words, with all that can stand in the way of a real profound solidarity with those who suffer in the first place from misery and injustice. Only thus, and not through purely interior and spiritual attitudes, will the new person arise from the ashes of the old. Christians have not done enough in this area of conversion to the neighbor, to social justice, to history. To have not perceived clearly enough that to know God is to do justice. And I, I think that's really important. That's one of Gustavo Gutierrez's, I think, the, the lines he repeats most often. To know God is to work for justice. There is no other path to reach God. And when we become complacent, with an unjust status quo, when we kind of become comfortable or reduce everything to convenience or, or let ourselves off the hook, I, I think we've failed in this ongoing process of conversion. And, and that's, that's a tough call to answer. You know, it's a tall order to live up to that radical break. And, and I think that that prophetic call is always something that, that challenges us, that tries to unsettle us so that we, we don't just, um, let, our, let ourselves off too easily and uh, miss out on what God still wants to make possible in and through us. You know, that, that the more that is possible through the movement of the Holy Spirit who beckons us to new life and, and new forms of community. And that, that's Gustavo Gutierrez's favorite question, que hay de nuevo, with what's new, which he doesn't mean like, just update me on your life. He, he means like, what is the spirit up to in your life? What, what are the movements of your heart? Where, where are you finding consolation or desolation? I mean, he's a Dominican, but I think really in his heart of hearts, he's, he's pretty Ignatian. And, and I think, you know, that conversion is a call to really pay attention to the consolation that uh, encourages us, that challenges us, that empowers us to keep responding to the cry of the poor, uh, that, that tries to dismantle the beliefs and, and, and practices that convince us that some lives don't matter or matter less than others, or that convince us, you know, nothing can be done to solve these problems. It simply is the way that the world is. Alternatively, you know, Catholic social teaching provides kind of that macro view of, of what does structural change require? What does it look like? How do we go about the long-term work of change? Because, you know, you, you can read liberation theology and, and it, it might radicalize you and you might get 
move to act or to speak up and advocate. But, you know, this has got to be a sustainable commitment, you know, and, and burnout, or at least the threat of burnout is real. I always think of that line from Father Greg Boyle, if you're depleted, you're doing it wrong, right? Like this, this has to be a life commitment. And, and that's where I think Catholic social teaching gives us kind of the, the guideposts for figuring out how do we integrate this into our lives? Because to respond to the call of that radical break and conversion, that can seem so other. And, you know, we, I think we've all been on retreats where we get this spiritual high and we feel, a, you know, a special closeness to God. And it, it's such a joy and privilege to be able to retreat from the world, get away, to really put ourselves in touch with the nearness of God. But inevitably, when we return from the retreat, we, we go back to business as usual and, and fall into the, the pattern of our routine and, and, and come down from the mountaintop, so to speak. And, and that we, we don't want uh, you know, a spiritual life or a moral life that has huge peaks and valleys uh, as much as we want something that is a little bit more consistent and sustainable, something that integrates this into every pattern of our life, not so that it just becomes an item on our checklist where we you know, check off, okay, I've made my donation or I've shown up to these, these persons on the margins and now I can go about doing everything else that's on my to-do list, but that this actually shapes us as persons, as communities, as a society. And, and that's where Catholic social teaching really fills in a lot of gaps that liberation theology you know, is, is more oriented toward the praxis on, on the personal level and maybe through the grassroots, but not necessarily thinking through what does this look like in, in trying to bring together the economic sphere and the political sphere, the social sphere, the ecological sphere, to pay attention to gender and uh, ethnicity, nationality, physical ability, right? All these dimensions of what it means to be human and to create a vision for society based on, you know, the church's self-proclaimed expertise in being human and, and what is required for the fullness of life. Um, and, and so I think that's important because if we're going to be agents of reform, if we're going to be people who try to create change, then we've got to figure out how, how do we do this in a way that integrates various scales from the individual to the interpersonal to the institutional. And to be agents of change and personal and social transformation, not just as you know mavericks or lone rangers, but as as members of communities, as a global church with over a billion members. And I think that's a great mistake in liberation theology. Is a lot of people see it as a a contextual theology, you know, a particular way of doing theology. And even though it does take social context very seriously, and it you know it. it it does theology from the ditch, like in Luke's gospel, you know, where, where the, the Samaritan enters and takes that vantage point and makes it one's own and says, what is it like to be a person of color? What is it like to be an indigenous person? What is it like to be a woman in the face of patriarchy or sexism or misogyny? What is it like to be a child? You know, children are so often rendered less than or non-persons. What is it meant... What is it like to have a disability, whether it's cognitive or physical? That context matters, but it's not only a contextual theology. And, and, and so we, we've got to hold together the local and the universal, uh, the particularity of, of concrete human beings and their abilities and needs, and to create a vision for a, a world that does justice for all.
and, and to figure out, you know, how do we exercise power in a way that can actually lead us in the right direction so that we don't fall prey to, to you know, revolution or violence or angst and anger and, and bitterness and scorn uh, or, or just being dejected because it really it is uh, a long-term project and uh, it, it exceeds our grasp. But my hope is that with this, you know, body of, of Catholic social teaching that's 130 years old, that we can see that we're standing on the shoulders of people who've gone before us to try to raise the plight of people in previous ages, that this is the task in front of us today, and that we're laying the foundation for those who will come after us uh, so that we can better better love our, our neighbor as ourselves today, but also our future neighbors in, in kind of a longitudinal way that we we see the world as kind of on loan to us from future generations and, and figure out how how can we be good stewards of natural resources? You know, I, that's an important point because I think something I think about all the time as a parent, you know, American children consume 40 times what children in most of the rest of the world consume when it comes to natural resources, clothes, food, that kind of thing. Uh, and if everyone consumed at the rate of an American, we would need six or seven planet Earth's worth of resources. So th- there's enough in this world for everyone's need, but not everyone's greed, to paraphrase Gandhi. And I think that the vision of Catholic social teaching is to try to give us that long view, that longitudinal look that says, okay, how are we going to answer to our, our future neighbors, the, the unborn generations who will inherit the Earth in, in the condition we leave it to them? And uh, and I think both of those perspectives are invaluable for what it what is required to love God, the Creator of everything, right? Who who sees the earth and calls it good and and very good, and who calls and empowers us to be caretakers and covenant partners to one another and to all creation. I'm so taken, Marcus, by that quote from Gustavo Gutierrez, especially as we're in, at least at the time of this recording, the season of Lent, which is a season of conversion, that metanoia, uh, a change of mind, a change of heart, a redirection into a new direction of solidarity with each other. And so I'm thinking that I really have no other choice but to uh, post that <laughs> as uh, as a reflection for Lent. And so thank you so much for bringing that up and bringing that into the conversation very timely. And I'm wondering, Marcus, if we might shift to focus a little bit now on your book. I've begun to make my way through your book, The Ethics of Encounter, and I am loving it so far. And I especially like that you make it personal and you trace things back to a high school experience in the Dominican Republic. And could you give us a rundown of your new book and what led you to write the book? What is it about? What are its central arguments and how do these central arguments relate to your life experience? Yeah, thanks. Uh, You know, I I wrote my dissertation on this theology of neighbor that Gustavo Gutierrez mentions in A Theology of Liberation. It's kind of a throwaway line. It actually comes two pages before that quote on conversion. Uh, Gustavo says, A theology of the neighbor, which has yet to be worked out, would have to be structured on this basis, kind of really focusing on Matthew 25 and James chapter 2, verse 5, that, you know, salvation passes through what we do for one another and that the the poor among us are the first to inherit the kingdom. And how do we answer to the, the least among us? And I thought, well, if, if the theology of neighbor has to be worked out, I, I'd like to be the person who does that. 
And so that was really the project that I, I took on and, uh, as a doctoral student, trying to think about what does it mean to encounter our neighbor. Eve Congar calls it the sacrament of our neighbor. And I always think of that line from C.S. Lewis, next to the blessed sacrament, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. And, you know, as I was working on, on my dissertation, and then, then later, you know, working on this book, I, I really everything pivoted around this experience I had in high school when I was a, a student at Marquette High the summer before my senior year. I was part of a, a group of, of 10 students who raised, I think it was $13,000 to build a, a brick and mortar school in the Campo in the countryside. It was going to be one of the only brick and mortar buildings for miles to be not only a school, but a community center. And when we visited uh, the Dominican Republic, before we got to the Campo, Father Brennan took us on a tour of, of Santo Domingo. And we visited some of the tourist highlights, including this Faro, this lighthouse that was erected in 1992 to commemorate the 500th anniversary of Christopher Columbus, quote unquote, discovering the new world. And uh, we did the touristy sites and then uh, promptly headed in the direction of the city dump. And here we are, you know, 10 teenage boys driving in this white air-conditioned passenger van. And I remember sitting there as, you know, kind of this kid from the suburbs of Milwaukee, reflecting on how much distance I felt through those windows, looking at this garbage dump where I began to see that there were people who were living in the garbage dump and, and picking through the garbage for anything they could eat, use, or sell. And Father Brennan, uh, who was guiding our trip, explained to us that these people had previously lived where the lighthouse, lighthouse now stood, but you know their homes had been raised by the local government to create this tourist attraction, and the local government didn't provide any other place for them to live, and they had no choice but to make their homes in other people's garbage. And the garbage was perpetually on fire to make room for more garbage. So you know we could see the fire and the smoke, we could see all the flies from all the garbage. I mean, it just looked like hell on earth. I just remember thinking like, oh my God, I just, I'm grateful that I, that this is not my life. And then Father Brennan stopped the van and told us to get out. And we were shocked and not only by the command to get out of the van, but when we opened up the van doors, we were just hit by this wave of heat and stench and smoke. And within seconds, we were ambushed by children of all ages who ran up to us and embraced us like we were long lost cousins. And it took my breath away. I'm actually getting goosebumps right now thinking about this moment in my life because it was so poignant to go from feeling so far away, you know, like this voyeur or spectator, and then being so warmly embraced with this cariño, this tender care and affection, this warmth and, and hospitality. And we were essentially human jungle gyms for the next couple hours you know, grabbing children by the hands and spinning them around in circles. In Spanish, they're called vueltas or, or flights, you know, where you lift kids high off the ground and they're just shrieking in delight and laughter and giggling. And I mean, it was so much fun. You know, here we were, you know, lives so vastly different and yet we were treated like family, like there was no daylight between us. And uh, before long, a man approached Father Brennan and asked him if he would bless his home. And so we were walking through these piles of garbage and, you know, as you can imagine, right? I mean, there are people trying to find food right next to open sewage and no running water, electricity. I mean, it was really just miserable. 
And we finally get to this man's home, which was a, a cave in a hill of garbage that was divided in half by a string and some old blankets. And on the right was basically where uh, the man and his wife and children slept on some old soft garbage. And on the left-hand side of the divide, there was nothing except a table, a chair, and a framed picture of the Sacred Heart of Jesus. And I was blown away because that was the exact same image that was hanging up in the wall of my home parish in the suburbs of Milwaukee. And I'm ashamed to admit this, but it, it took that image for me to see that these people were my brothers and sisters in Christ, that they were my equals, that, that they had the exact same value in God's eyes as my life. And not only that, that we were equals in God's eyes, but also part of God's single human family, that we really did belong to each other. I always think of that line from Mother Teresa, if we have no peace, it is because we have forgotten that we belong to each other. And, and I, it wasn't that I had forgotten that we belong to each other. I couldn't even conceive of a world where we could belong each other, to each other across such vast differences of opportunity, of resources, of privilege, of power, of status. But in that moment, you know, uh, the man, the, our host, grabbed our hands and said, hermanos rosemos, brothers, let us pray. And we, we prayed to our father together. And, and you know, that, that prayer, the, the, you know, the our father, not my father and your father, our father, which, you know, if, if you go back to the Aramaic, that word that, that Jesus gives us for, you know, when his disciples ask him, how should we pray? It's better translated as daddy. You know, like there's, there's an intimacy, there's a safeness, a, a trust, a tenderness, an affection, a, re, a real sense of, you know, attentiveness. And to know that that attentiveness is not only directed toward me, but also to them. You know, ever since that moment, I've really have felt accountable to the, the people who live in Cienfuegos. That's the town of the community, you know, means a hundred fires because the garbage dump is perpetually on fire. And, and I've always thought about how I use my privilege, my opportunities, my education, my position, my, my bank account in a way that's really accountable to them. Because I, I wonder, you know, if, if the positions were reversed, what would they be doing with, with all that I have? And what would I, you know, if I were the one living in the dump, what would I want from people who have so much or who might easily take so much for granted? And, and so that really, I mean, that steered the course of my life after that moment, you know, that it determined what I studied in college and why I, I pursued a graduate degree, focusing on Catholic social teaching, really trying to sink my teeth into solidarity and the preferential option for the poor. And so the, the roots uh, of this book are in my graduate work, you know, studying with Gustavo Gutierrez and trying to reconcile that call to conversion, that radical break with the, the demands that we all have already on our shoulders, right? I mean, everyone feels like their plate is overflowing with responsibility. And so when I when I do teach about the principles of solidarity and the preference option for the poor, although there can there can be this energizing dimension to it, I also have students who say, well, I already have so much, or there's so many problems, like how can I possibly try to add more to my plate? How can you ask more of me, especially in trying to tackle these huge problems, whether it's environmental degradation or poverty or violence. And, and and so that's really the task that I try to take on with this book. And the generative theme or focus that I use comes from Pope Francis. I was just wrapping up my dissertation when Francis was elected, and he started talking about this culture of encounter 
And I was so intrigued by this vision of trying to bring people together across difference. And even though he sketched out some possibilities for this culture of encounter, and it's, you know, it's kind of popped up here and there, and he talks about the need for tenderness and solidarity and hope, he hasn't really given us much of a roadmap for how we can construct a culture of encounter in our time and place. And, and part of that is, you know, just by necessity, right? That, and he's speaking as the Bishop of Rome and the pastor for the, the world's 1.3 billion Catholics. And he can't tell each Catholic what the culture of encounter is going to require of them. And so I, I kind of took it on as my challenge to say, what could this look like in a North American context? And, um, and that's, that's where I start with the first chapter is to really look at what is the state of our cultural context and, and, and how do we analyze the root causes of so many, I think, symptoms of, of crisis in our community. You know, we have this hyper-individualism, maybe even a toxic individualism that, you know, this kind of this don't tread on me mentality where we really do see freedom as freedom from encroachment or interference or coercion, but we rarely see it as freedom for providing for others or protecting others or having any kind of obligation. I mean, it, it, it's so hard in our cultural context to have any kind of moral norms for agreement and accountability because there's just so much fear of, of appearing intolerant or judgmental. You know, I hear so many people say, I do me, you do you, you stay in your lane, I'll stay in my lane. But one of the things that I point out in my book is that live and let live just as easily becomes live and let die, or at the very least, live and let suffer. And to, you know, to take seriously this idea that humans were born to bond. We are inherently social beings, uh, that you can't have human dignity and human rights without those corresponding responsibilities to the common good. And, and that's really hard to find traction in our cultural context because of not only that hyper-individualism and that emphasis on personal freedom or, you know, pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps, where we kind of think of you know, problems as character flaws rather than as structural inequalities, but also just the, the, the economic insecurity that we're facing, you know, that, that makes people kind of turn inwards and focus more on self-interest because they are so fearful. We're living in a state of anxiety, which makes it really hard to be vulnerable with others or to trust others. We're also living in increasingly segregated communities. I mean, this isn't necessarily new. I mean, it's been 60 years since Martin Luther King said, 11 o'clock on Sunday morning is America's most segregated hour because of how segregated our churches have been. But studies show that we're increasingly living in neighborhoods and sending our kids to schools and, and worshiping in, in churches and shopping in stores that are segregated by race and class. So it's getting really hard to understand what it's like to be someone other than me. You know, three quarters of white Americans don't have a single black friend and two thirds of black Americans don't have a single white friend. So if we don't have friendships across the color line or across class lines, it's really hard to understand what it's like to be someone other than me or to care about the problems of people of color or to make it feel like their problems are my problems. And the political polarization doesn't help matters at all. I mean, the, the contempt and disdain is out of control. We know, I mean, psychologists tell us that, that scorn is the poison pill of relationships whether they're intimate or, or social relationships. And we see that normalized everywhere we look. You know, more than 20% of Republicans and Democrats call members of the other party evil, not misguided, not, you know, off course, evil. 
And less than 4% of Republicans and Democrats use adjectives like thoughtful, kind, or fair to describe members of the other party. And one of the real points I try to make in the book is that even in a cultural context marked by all this separation and distrust, that it, it seems like often people just try to invoke empathy or kindness or civility or tolerance, but these are problems too big for tolerance or civility to solve, right? Because we're not encountering people across real difference. And, and, and kindness is not going to solve these structural problems or resolve the unjust inequalities that we're facing. And I think too, you know, the, the time we spend with screens trains us to see ourselves as spectators, you know, uh, where we're looking in on the lives of others, we're scrolling en- endlessly, the, the, the doom scrolling, you know, uh, through news feeds that are, that are not fair and balanced. You know, these, these are the fruit of algorithms that are carefully created to present you with content you are inclined to like and engage. I mean, this is why these platforms are free, because we are the product and our user data is being mined to try to come up with algorithms that will keep our eyeballs on a screen for as long as possible. And psychologists call our screens digital heroin, right? Like our phones are designed to, to capture our intention and just keep us scrolling or clicking, making it harder and harder to put down our, our phones. And not only is that problematic, because it, it really makes it hard to be present to the people who, you know, that might not be accessible through a screen or the people that we're actually physically in, in the presence of, but also because it reinforces those lifestyle enclaves, these, these little segregated silos. And there's confirmation bias everywhere you look because of those algorithms, right? If we're presented with content we're inclined to like, that's just going to confirm our worldview and convince us that the world would be a better place if everyone saw things the way that we see them. And if everyone agreed with us, you know, we, we could solve all the world's problems. And, and so the, this culture of encounter that Pope Francis calls us to, I think, is, 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 is part of that radical call to conversion. And that first chapter shows why we need the culture of encounter. And then the subsequent chapters try to unpack how do we actually try to live up to this call to be agents of a culture of encounter, to to build opportunities, to break down barriers, and to bring people together across real difference, not just for challenging conversations, but to build relationships. And, you know, the second chapter focuses on the story of the, of the Samaritan, much like the second chapter in Fratelli Tutti. The third chapter tries to find a way to balance our moral responsibilities between the preferential option for the poor and those who rely on us the most, you know, our, our proximate relationships, this ordering of love that we inherit from Augustine and Aquinas that has always given preference to our spouses, our children, our parents, our near neighbors, and makes it really hard to integrate a preferential option for the poor that calls for that radical conversion or break that really challenges uh, the, the way that we allocate our time and energy and resources. And then the fourth chapter, I hear from readers, they, they actually enjoy the fourth chapter the most. The third chapter is the most technical, and some people get a little bit lost there. But the fourth chapter, I really tried to provide a, a practical plan for trying to be an agent of personal and social transformation. And I take seriously that call to cultivate friendship with the poor that we receive from Gustavo Gutierrez. Um, and to say, you know, Aristotle was partly right when he said we are what we repeatedly do. You know, our, our habits create our character. Uh, but what he missed was we are what we repeatedly do together. And, and social scientists point out that 
teaching and, and preaching, no offense, David, but you know what we hear from the pulpit or even from the, the lectern in the classroom or from our parents you know, who, who might uh, give us their own homilies at home, um, that, that has very little effect on us. That really the, the, the most potent formation happens in relationship with friends and family, that we, we are what we repeatedly do together. You know, and long ago, William Shakespeare said, tell me who your friends are and I'll tell you who you are. And, and he was onto something because, you know, when, when we have friends who suffer, whatever it might be, right? I mean, it could be someone with Down syndrome. It could be someone who's experienced intimate partner violence. It could be someone who's LGBTQ and, and, and just endured so much stigma or shame. When we, when we are friends with people who really question if they count, matter, or belong, their problems become our problems, right? And, and my students always feed that back to me. You know, like if they care a lot about cancer, it's because cancer has touched their life or the life of someone that they love. And so the, the task in front of us is to really break out of those segregated friendships that, that keep us from really experiencing life in, in ways that stretch us beyond our social location and to form friendships across real differences. So that's not tokenism, right? But to see an equality, a reciprocity, that, that shared respect and trust and accountability, right? And that's what I think is so crucial about friendship. It is equal part support and accountability. You know, sometimes if we, I don't know, we can deceive ourselves and, and tell us that we're not as good as we really are, or maybe that we're better off than we actually are, and, and we need really good friends, virtuous friends who can call us out and tell us, no, you're better than that. Or, hey, you're, you've got a little bit more work to do. And, and I think that's, that's the real gift of friendship, and especially when we, we call to mind that solidarity is that social charity or the, the public friendship. So it's not just dyads, but collective friendship where we have these relationships that move, the, move us from the, the vertical line of, of kind of the unilateral charity or aid, the condescension and, and pity to the mutuality and the co-responsibility of solidarity in, in a more horizontal plane that reinforces that the equality of each and all so that we don't see ourselves as the voice of the voiceless or saviors of the poor. You know, this is a point that Gustavo Gutierrez really reinforces that the task of liberation theology, the preferential option for the poor and solidarity is to create the conditions so that the poor can be agents of their own future, that they can have a say in their fate and not just wait around on the, you know, the benevolence of the privileged and powerful. And so that's what chapter four is really aiming toward. You know, how do we, how do we create that, that kind of set of beliefs and practices that, that can help us find traction for that personal and social transformation, wherever we might be. And then the fifth chapter focuses on the, the networks that are, we're already a part of, you know, so we don't have to reinvent the wheel, but you know, how do we leverage family networks? How do we leverage schools and neighborhoods? How do we leverage digital technology and social media? And, and how do we bridge that the culture of encounter and the preference option for the poor with what Pope Francis highlights in Laudato Si, you know, the, the ecological conversion and that commitment to the global common good, to resist throwaway culture that, that impacts not only the poor, but also the planet, and that tries to integrate our social and environmental responsibilities. And there's a real brief conclusion, just a couple pages, that try to end with a word of hope, because this is, this is hard work. And yet, I, I, I really believe 
what John Sabrino says, that the resurrection does make new forms of life and community possible, and that we can live as already at least partially risen beings, that if we take seriously, Jesus has conquered sin and death. We don't just have to wait for the eschaton, for the reign of justice and peace, but that, you know, in in the eyes of uh, the Orthodox theologian, John Zazulis, that the Holy Spirit comes to us from the future and leads us into the future, giving us these gifts of the Spirit so that we can see ourselves as ambassadors of reconciliation to bring about the healing and the restoration, the faith, hope, and love that we're destined for. And I think that's really what it means to, to pray and, and to live the Our Father, right? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I love your point, Marcus, about preaching and relationships. I was just, as you were speaking, I was reflecting a little bit about the times when a, someone's preaching has really changed me, and I came up with nothing. <laughs> so, <laughs> and I, I have spoken here on the show about different books I feel like have really transformed me, and maybe in a way I feel like I have a relationship uh, with the, the people I read about in books. And But above that, I think of relationships, and that really has been a definitive way of transforming my own life. And from our conversation today, Marcus, it seems that that's the case for you and those relationships that you were forming in the Dominican Republic, your own relationship uh, with your professor, Gustavo Gutierrez, and you remember these stories, you remember these things because of the, the human bonds of love that were created in those situations. And I, I don't want to pass up on this point, Marcus, of the Fratelli Tutti connection with your book, because I know that we had some conversations uh, about your book and the idea of the book being related to the Good Samaritan. And then we have a few months later, Pope Francis's Fratelli Tutti comes out, and it is all about that. What was it like for you to read Fratelli Tutti almost as if you were the prophet <laughs> who, uh, who was behind Fratelli Tutti? What was that like to see that connection? Yeah, it was surreal. Uh, one of my colleagues uh, from my graduate school days at Boston College emailed me and, and said, what, what is it like when your book becomes an encyclical? Uh, I mean, I, I really appreciate what Pope Francis is giving us in Fratelli Tutti. Um, you know, one of the tasks that I wanted to pick up with my book is is to kind of push us from a culture of encounter, you know, bringing people together across difference, to a culture of inclusive belonging, a culture of solidarity. You know, to to see a culture of encounter as the floor, not the ceiling. And, and I think there there are seeds of that. Uh, you know, push uh, in Fratelli Tutti, and, and certainly the fact that my second chapter and, and the second chapter of Fratelli Tutti both focus on the Samaritans example it is, uh, you know, just a happy coincidence. But I, I hope it does provide people uh, a, a reason to to turn to my book as a as a resource for trying to say, okay, we've we've got this rich document in Fratelli Tutti where Pope Francis is trying to confront these reductive anthropological visions of depersonalization and degradation at, at work in our world and calling people to this vision of loving and accepting everyone as brothers and sisters as part of God's single human family. And certainly that that's part of the message i'm I'm trying to send. but 
again, it, it falls, you know, Fratelli Tutti, like all encyclicals, it, it falls really short when it comes to the pedagogical steps or the, the practical action steps that we can take. And, and that's where I hope maybe my, my book can help people in, in their homes, with their families, in their parishes, in schools, and in, in any mission-based organization, really, to say, okay, how, how can we be agents of inclusion? How can we better recognize our interdependence? How, how can we try to respond in a way that scaffolds solidarity on the individual level, on the interpersonal level, and on the institutional level? So I, I do hope in, in some ways that the encyclical sparks a, a new interest in my book. You know, it came, my book came out just about a year ago when, <laughs> when COVID was hitting us and then it, it really did swallow up a lot uh, of attention for the book and canceled all my, my, my events that I had lined up. And that's okay. Uh, but I, I have been really grateful to some really warm reviews lately, including one just this past week that, that said, um, this book is destined to be a classic in the canon of Catholic social teaching, which is feels like pretty high praise. And in fact, the the reviewer said the ethics of encounter is everything writing on Catholic social teaching should be. So, so my hope is that you know, in in the gratitude I feel for so many Jesuit teachers and professors, for the example of, of folks like John Sabrino and Pedro Rupe and Gustavo Gutierrez and Pope Francis that um, my book can can be part of the way that I carry the torch from those who've gone before me to those who will come after me in trying to create a, a roadmap for building a world that is more inclusive, more equitable, more just. Well, thank you so, uh, so much, Marcus, for your generosity in joining the show today and speaking about the relationship between Catholic social teaching and liberation theology, speaking about your book, from what I have read so far, I'm looking at this line on the back of the book that's describing it, saying that the ethics of encounter puts the heart back into academic ethics. And uh, that has been my experience of it so far. So I would just really encourage listeners to get the book from Orbis, uh, our great friends at Orbis. It seems like every episode, Marcus, I am recommending one, if not more books from Orbis because they really everything that they publish <laughs> is so relevant and they have been the publisher in the United States in many ways for Catholic social teaching and liberation theology. And so God bless you, Marcus, for forming part of that team and counting yourself amongst uh, the great authors who have written for Orbis and contributing to their collection. So thank you so much, Marcus. And uh, any, I know that St. Ignatius of Loyola likes to finish with consolation. So maybe, Marcus, uh, to put you on the spot here, what kind of message of consolation might you provide our listeners today a message of consolation, maybe, uh, yeah, that you might be able to share with us at this time. Yeah, I mean, the, the world feels pretty heavy and pretty weary. You know, we're, we're nearing the one-year mark of the pandemic. We're getting awfully close to a half million deaths uh, due to COVID-19. And, you know, in this time of darkness, uh, I think we're all looking for light and I, I think St. Ignatius would remind us not only to look for the light, but to be the light uh, for one another, to be, to show up for one another, to, to be that source of consolation for others, and, and not to be afraid of the hurt or the wound. I, I was with students in El Salvador last March, right as the pandemic was coming. We, we actually caught, I think, the last flight out of San Salvador to the United States, right as borders were closing. And it was a powerful week in, in uh, El Salvador. 
praying in the, the garden in the uka where the Jesuits and their housekeeper and her daughter were pulled out of their beds in the middle of the night and murdered, uh, visiting with, with people who survived El Salvador's brutal civil war, visiting the home of Archbishop Oscar Romero and, and, and standing right in the chapel where he was assassinated just about 41 years ago. And I think among the most moving moments in our trip was when we got to visit with a woman named Anita, who opened her home to women who were experiencing domestic violence. About one in three women in El Salvador are, are subject to domestic violence. And we asked her, like, well, what keeps you going? How, how do you keep moving forward? And uh, she became quite tearful because I, I could imagine that you know the, the weight of her work was really hitting her and all the stories she heard, all the suffering that she has encountered kind of was rising to the surface. But she, she looked up at us and she said, I'll translate from the Spanish to the English, she said, where there is a wound, there is God. And, and so I, I, I think that's, I think, the consolation that, that even though this past year has been really hard and, and a lot of people are living under a lot of duress, all this displacement from our roles and routines and relationships, certainly the, you know, the, the physical distancing and to say nothing of you know, all the people who've lost their jobs or who are really trying to scrape by and, and all the death and illness, that we can't run from those wounds. We can't hide from them. We can't kind of sweep them under the carpet, pretend they're not there. And I think that's a grace of, of Lent and of liberation theology, right? It, it directs our gaze to the cross. It, it, it invites us to draw near the crucified Christ and, and the crucified people of today and to acknowledge our wounds, not so that we wallow in them, but so that we can really try to do the work of, of healing. And, and healing is not an individual or isolated act. It, it, healing, I think, always happens in and through relationships. You know, there are times we are healers. There are times when we need healing and we, we are extended that from other people. And, and so I, I think, uh, you know, it's a consolation to be with you today. You know, we don't get to see each other on campus anymore. I don't get to be in the same room as my students anymore. We're doing everything through Zoom. You know, it, I think a lot of us are feeling awfully lonely and, and isolated, and, and that can make us pretty anxious and afraid. And yet, I think um, we have to remember that we're, we're never alone in, in whatever we face, that God is with us, not only in the wounds, but especially in the wounds, trying to bring about some healing. And, and my, that's my hope. I think that the pandemic gives us an opportunity for us to confront the wounds, not just brought about by the pandemic, but exposed by the pandemic. I mean, there's just all the disparities by class, by race, um, all the, you know, the epidemic of loneliness and despair in our country that this is an opportunity for us to imagine who do we want to be on the other side of the pandemic? What kind of society do we want to build? And, and I think that when we can be intentional about connecting with other people and trying to bring about some healing, that that can be when we are especially tuned into the presence and power of God in our midst, working in and through us. Thank you for that. And I do hope that that transformation and healing comes and that God's kingdom would come and that God's will would be done and that will of love would grow on earth at this time and that we would feel each, each other in solidarity with each other. So thank you, Marcus. And I, I wish you the best. And just thanks once again for, for joining the Liberation Theology Podcast.
Thanks for joining this week's episode of the Liberation Theology Podcast. Next time, we will look into the way that liberation theology interprets the Bible. But for now, let us finish with a closing prayer. Marcus mentioned the importance of the Our Father as a prayer of our sisterhood and brotherhood, as dignified children of God. And so let us finish this week with that Our Father. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.